Unfortunately, the master tape from which the following recording was taken is in very poor condition. However, we have digitally restored it and we do apologise for the poor quality of parts of it. However, we hope it will not spoil your enjoyment of this sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the first part of the first verse in the 14th Psalm. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. That, I say, is the first statement in the first verse, in the 14th Psalm. Now, there can be no question at all that the greatest matter confronting every one of us who's in this world this evening is this whole question which is put before us by this statement in this psalm. Nothing, surely, we all must agree, whatever our view is, nothing can be more important than this matter of our relationship to God. I say that it is greater than any other question. There are many great questions confronting us and confronting the world at this present hour. You are as aware of that as I am myself, and it is right that we should be gravely concerned about them. It may well be that the whole position of the world and of civilization tonight has again reached one of those climactic moments it's no part of my business or that of anybody else to be an alarmist. But any reading or any understanding of the things that are happening in the world tonight must surely bring us all to see that there are momentous matters which are not only occupying the minds of statesmen but also of the common people. The world is in a terrible position. It's very right, therefore, that you should think, and we should all think as Christian people and everybody, of the possibility of yet another war. That's a very great and important question, this whole matter of these bombs and their possible use. And indeed, the latest discoveries and triumphs of science. It's very right that we should be considering and talking about this satellite, so-called, that has suddenly been released, this extraordinary phenomenon. Now, I say that whatever our views and whatever our attitude tonight, we should recognize, if we think at all and are concerned seriously about our existence in this world, that all this denotes tremendous possibility. It is indeed a tremendous matter that man has been able to do what he has succeeded in doing. And yet I say that this question that is put before us here by the psalmist transcends all those other questions in importance. And that is why this evening I am not going to preach to you about the satellite, and neither am I going to preach to you about hydrogen bombs, nor about the, the Labour Party conference, nor the forthcoming Conservative Party conference, nor any one of these matters. 
Because, as I understand my calling, my privilege is to address you on something which is infinitely more important than all those things even put all together. Why? Well, for this good reason. That here we are dealing with something which is absolutely certain and which goes on and continues whatever may happen with respect to any one of the other questions. Whether there is a war or not, my relationship to God still remains. Even though there be no war, I know that my life in this world is limited and that I still have to face this question. And indeed, should there be a war and should these horrible things be used and should we find hell let loose again upon the face of the earth, well then I think it needs very little demonstration that there will be nothing more important at that moment than our relationship to God. If London is reduced to a mass of rubble, well then my interest will not be in London, not in its buildings, not in its universities, not in anything, but I shall be face to face with my own destiny. And that brings me at once to this question of my relationship to God. So I say that this is incomparably the greatest and the most important question that can ever face men and women while they're in this world. Now there are many attitudes towards this question of our relationship to God. But I this evening want to consider with you only this particular one which is here described by the psalmist. And that is the attitude which says there is no God. Now this, as you know, is a very common attitude. There are many who take up this position and who say that, to plan their lives and order their existence on this idea and on this supposition. They say, I don't believe in God. And they go on to say, if you don't believe in God, what difference does it make? You're familiar with that attitude. The people who say, there is no God. And it makes no difference to my life at all. The fact that there is no God. Now then, let's consider what this man is going to say about that. And you notice that he makes a very blunt assertion. And what the psalmist says about any man who is in that position is simply that he's a fool. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Now, the thing I want to emphasize is this, that the psalmist is making a universal statement. He doesn't say some of the people who say that there is no God are fools. He says every one of them is. He doesn't say, of course, there are fools who say this sort of thing, but on the other hand, there are great and learned and educated people who also say it. Not at all. He makes a universal statement without any qualification, without any limitations, without any exceptions whatsoever. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Or putting it the other way around, any man who says that there is no God, well, is just a fool. What's a fool? Well, uh, the uh, real meaning of the word fool is that he's uh, a superficial person. Uh, the fool is the man who doesn't think. The fool is uh, contrasted always with the wise man, or as the psalmist contrasts him with the man of understanding. He said, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand. 
So the fool, you see, is a man who lacks understanding. He lacks the ability to think clearly. Uh, he's a man who acts in an impetuous manner, who doesn't consider the consequences. That is the biblical meaning of the word fool. He's a man who is acting in an idiotic manner. He's lacking in reason and understanding and insight. Dear me, says someone, surely this is a most extraordinary state. Is that true today? Is that your contention? Are you asserting that what the psalmist said in his day and generation is still the simple truth today? Well, I am concerned to establish this very proposition this evening. I am in this pulpit because I believe in the depths of my being that any man who says that there is no God is just a fool. And the business of preaching is to enlighten him. Is to show him his error. Is to expose him to the utter folly of the position that he has taken up. I do so in love. I do so because of my concern for any such person who may be listening to me at this moment. There is nothing to me so tragic as that a man should be a fool and that in his folly he should say, there is no God. Very well, how do I establish it? How could the psalmist have established it in his day? Well, I, I want to reason the thing out with you. I say the times are so serious and so desperate that I need not remind you that I'm doing this not because I delight in argumentation or disputation or because I like conducting this kind of inquiry in an intellectual and in a theoretical manner. I hope to show you before I finish that as I've already been saying, this is, this is the vital matter of all matters, the things that depend upon it are so momentous and so terrifying that I feel it is my duty to put this matter as simply and as plainly and as directly as I can to anybody who is prepared to listen. Very well then, uh, here, is the, here is the contention. That any man who says uh, in his heart that there is no God is a fool. Well, in what respects is he a fool? Well, here's the first. The first respect in which he's a fool is that he's a man who listens over much to his heart. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Here is a man, according to the psalmist, who is governed by his desire, whose outlook is determined by this which he calls the heart, which is the seat of the sensibilities. He's a man who's governed by what he likes and what he wants to do and what he pleases and what he desires rather than by certain other things. It's a decision he's arrived at, says the psalmist, in his heart. Well, now, why is this a foolish thing to do? Well, let me put it in, in the form of a number of contrasts. Here is a man, I say, who is a fool because he listens to his heart and his desire Instead of listening to that sense which is within him as it is within the whole of the human race, the sense of God. Now there is in every man and woman born into this world 
a sense of God. It is universal. There has never been a person in this world but that he's had a sense of God. Now, a man, of course, may try to stifle that. He may, he may try to argue it down. He may try to browbeat it. But what I'm asserting is that in every human being, there is a sense of God. And, of course, this is really granted. Because there are many today who don't believe in God, who think that they can explain away the sense of God, which they've got to admit. But the fact is, therefore, that there is in all of us in this manner this amazing sense of God. The feeling that at the back of everything there is this eternal being. That at the back of everything that is seen is the great unseen eternal God. There is this natural sense of reverence in us all, perhaps accompanied by an element of fear, but it's there. You can go, as has been done, you can go and study anthropology. And you can go and investigate the condition of the uh, most primitive tribes that are in the world at this moment. You'll find them in the heart of Central Africa. You'll find them in the heart of Australia and in Northwest America. And you will find that in the most primitive tribes known to mankind, there is nevertheless this sense of God, this sense of a supreme being, this sense of a God who is at the back of and beyond all the other gods that they worship. Many of them worship stones and trees and find spirits in animals and so on, but they've all got this sense of God. It is a universal sin. Now, I say that a man who brushes that aside and who listens and who is governed by what he wants to be the truth and what he'd like to be the truth in order that he may live a certain kind of life is just being a fool. Surely it is our business to pay very close and careful attention to anything that is elemental within us, anything that is profound within us. A man who dismisses something that seems to be an innate part of his personality and of his very being is, I suggest, a fool. Now, any man who says there is no God is guilty of doing that. He is going against a voice within himself that says there is a God. Very well, that's only the first point. In the same way, such a man goes against the voice of his conscience. For again, this is something that is beyond dispute. We all have a conscience within us. We often wish we hadn't, but we've got it. And when we do something that is wrong, our conscience tells us so, and it condemns us. It makes us feel miserable. We may pass through an agony of remorse, if not of repentance. That's the voice of conscience speaking. The voice that says you shouldn't have done it, that's wrong. That isn't true. That's against this God. A sense of whom you have within you. There it is in the whole of mankind. A conscience which we can't explain. And yet, you see, uh, here is a man, says the psalmist, who violates that in the same way. He doesn't listen to it. He doesn't pay attention to it. He isn't governed by it. What's he governed by? Ah, he's governed by another type of life that he's conjured up. He sees other people living it. He says to himself, now, it'll be a wonderful thing if I could go and live that sort of life. Ah, but he's a bit afraid of that because it isn't godly and his conscience condemns him. But he says, very well, then, there is no God. Why, perhaps, after all, I've been fooling myself. So in order to live that life, he has to say, there is no God. 
He can't do the two things at the same time. So he says there is no... But this is the thing that makes him say it. He's violating the vice of his conscience. As he has already violated this sense of God that is within him. But, and this is the one I really want to emphasize. This man is a fool. Because he doesn't use and doesn't listen to his understanding. Now that is, as I said, the psalmist's contention. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, he asks, who eat up my people as they eat bread? Here is the final charge against this man. And it is, of course, at this point we see most clearly and plainly the fact that the man is a fool. He is not listening to his understanding. Now then, I want to take up this point and to look at it for a moment in general. Because I think you'll all agree that there are two main objections which are brought very uh, volubly and in a very clement manner at the present time against the very thing that I'm saying. The average man today, surely, if he hears a man saying what I've just been saying, that a man who says there is no God is a fool because he doesn't listen to his understanding, I say the average man of today wants to get up and say, My dear sir, do you know that you're preaching in 1957 and not in A.D. 57 or something like that? They said to say that people today have no understanding because they don't believe in God. Why? He argues it's because of their understanding they don't believe in God. Now, that is the argument, isn't it? The argument today is that these people don't believe in God because of their knowledge, because of their understanding, because of their great brains, because of their wonderful ability. And they say the only people who still believe in God are these primitive types who haven't yet developed, or these psychological cases, these psychopaths, or these people who deliberately put their heads in the sands and won't look at the evidence and won't face the facts. Isn't that the argument? Well, now let me meet him. The psalmist's contention is that these people are fools. And they're fools because they don't act on their understanding, but on their desire. How do I establish it? Well, I, I establish it like this. Is uh, this uh, disbelief in God confined to the learned and to the people of knowledge? You see, if this argument is right, it would be the case that all the ignorant people in the world would be believers in God. But the learned people, the people of knowledge, and especially scientific knowledge, every one of them would not believe in God. But is that the case? Well, we know perfectly well that for every learned, intelligent man you can show me in the world tonight who doesn't believe in God... I can show you a man who is unlearned and ignorant and lacking in intelligence and lacking in ability. Oh, I know it's a wonderful thing to hear people on the brains trust. The picked intellects, they don't believe in God. But you know, I can find you five or six people on the street corner, whenever you like, will say exactly the same thing as them. Is this denial of God based upon learning? Why does the ignorant, unlettered... An intelligent person say exactly the same thing. And you know this is rather interesting, it's rather important. Did you know that at the present time, 
religion, belief in God and the worship of God, is more popular amongst the intelligent people in this country than it is amongst the others. Now, this is a charge that is very often hurled at the church because of the statistics. What is being said at the present time is this. Ah, they say the Christian church, yes, it's just middle class. It's mainly middle class. It doesn't touch the masses of the people. It's just middle class. Well, no, that's a very important statement, isn't it? I'm not here to say anything against any particular group in society, but I am here to indicate this, that religion is most successful today in the universities amongst the more intelligent people, the people who are in such places of learning because they've got brains and intelligence. It's succeeding there much more than it is succeeding in suburbia, much more than it is succeeding amongst the masses of the people. The fact is that the masses of the people are unconcerned today and the Christian church somehow or another is not touching them. Well, all I say therefore is this. It is not primarily a matter of intelligence. The facts prove that it isn't. But come, let me put that in a still stronger form to you. Not only can I thus establish that the unintelligent and illiterate and People who have no culture don't believe in God. I can on the other side show you how men of knowledge, and men of learning and men of culture and men of science have been some of the greatest believers in God and in Christ that the church and the world has ever known. I couldn't help thinking of it during these past days. Take all this talk about this satellite. Take all this question of light and so on. Why, the man who made perhaps the greatest contribution of all in that realm was a man called Isaac Newton. And you know, people only know about Isaac Newton in terms of his scientific discoveries and theorizings and his brilliant hypotheses. They know about him and the apple falling and so on. They don't know this, that Isaac Newton spent most of his time in studying the scriptures and in writing books about prophecy and himself regarded his religious work and his writings on scripture and prophecy as being altogether more important than the other. Here, I say, is one of the great towering geniuses of all times in the scientific realm. In the same century, you had a man like Pascal living, the brilliant mathematician, and these men believe in God. I don't want to keep you. But you see, this argument that uh, the modern disbelief in God is the result of knowledge and learning and understanding, it just doesn't hold water for a second the moment you begin to analyze it. I say the facts I've put before you demonstrate quite clearly that whatever is the explanation, it isn't the explanation of knowledge and of learning. It's the lack of it. It is because these men are fools and are governed by something else rather than by their understandings. But come, let me say a word about the second objection, which is this. I can imagine someone saying, well now, of course, all that you've just been saying might have been quite all right a hundred years ago, or perhaps two hundred years ago. But, you know, they say that isn't uh, really the position now. The majority today are not interested in God and in Christ and in the church and in salvation because of our recent knowledge, it's the recent knowledge that's done it. Darwin, you see, writing his book in 1859, on the spread of biological knowledge, 
all these other things. This is what's done it in our knowledge of psychology, study of comparative religion and so on. It's all this latest knowledge. And any man who really is aware of all this latest knowledge, he's driven to saying that there is no God. So it is the latest knowledge that makes men say that there is no God. But you see, the simple answer to that is, is this. That in the time that David wrote this psalm, uh, people were saying exactly the same thing. They said it then. You see, there's nothing new about not believing in God. It's the oldest thing in the world is to deny God. And this is the thing to me that's so pathetic. That people think it's clever not to believe in God. That it's modern. That it's something new. That it's something wonderful. Look here, here's a man, King David, writing all this long time ago. A thousand years before Christ. Nearly 3,000 years ago. And there were people saying then there is no God. What the clever people are saying today. And who try to argue that they're saying it in terms of some latest knowledge. uh, This esoteric knowledge that they've been let into. And which people still don't have. My dear friend, isn't it clear that this has nothing at all to do with knowledge as such? It isn't a question of knowledge. It's a question of understanding. And that's a very different thing. A man may be a very able man. A man may have a lot of book knowledge. It doesn't mean that he has understanding. It doesn't mean that he has wisdom. A man can be aware of numbers of facts, but he may be a fool in his own personal life. Haven't we known such men? I've known men in some of the learned professions. I'd take their opinion without a moment's hesitation. Because of their knowledge, because of their learning, because of their understanding. But you know, sometimes I've known some of those men to be utter fools in their own personal lives. I mean by that, that they behaved like lunatics, as if they hadn't a brain at all. They behaved in exactly the same way as a man who'd never had their educational advantages, and who had none of their great knowledge. They drank too much, even as he did. They were guilty of adultery, even as he is. There's all the difference in the world between awareness of facts and of knowledge and wisdom and real understanding. Because though a man may have a great brain and may know a number of things, he may still be governed by his lusts and passions and desires. That's why he's a fool. He wants to live this kind of life that the psalmist describes here. There is none that doeth good. They've all become filthy, he says. And it's because they want to be filthy that they say there is no God. So that there is my first reason for calling such a man a fool. He is a man who listens to his heart, his desires, what he wants to do, rather than by true understanding. But come, let me come to a second point. He is, I say, a fool. Because, as I've just been putting it, he lacks this True understanding. I've been saying that he listens to his heart rather than to his understanding. Now I want to show you in a much more positive way how he really fails to exercise a true understanding. And this is something I can demonstrate to you in two ways. The first is that he arrives at momentous conclusions on insufficient evidence. 
Now, I think you'll agree with me, whatever your view of this matter is, that any man who arrives at a conclusion with insufficient evidence is behaving like a fool. A fool is a man who doesn't reason a thing through, he jumps to conclusions. He is governed by his prejudices, or as I say, by his passions and lusts, and by his desires. It is the mark of a fool always to draw momentous conclusions or deductions from inadequate or insufficient evidence. And I say that any man who says there is no God is guilty of that. Now then, let me try and prove what I'm saying. What are these arguments that they bring forward? Well, I can't mention all of them, but I can mention some of them. Here's a very common one. There are thousands of people in the world tonight who say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe there is a God. And you say, well, now, why don't you believe that? And they say, well, it's quite simple. If there is a God... Why are there wars? Or if there is a God, why are there spastic children? If there is a God, why are there earthquakes and pestilences and things like that? And on that and on that alone, they have come to the conclusion that there is no God. Now, it's amazing how intelligent people can reason and argue like that. I had a conversation a few, a few months ago with a highly intelligent professional man who came to me and asked if he might talk to me about these things. And he said he didn't believe in God. And I said, well, what is your reason for not believing in God? And the only reason that he could produce was this. That his wife had for a while to endure a very painful illness. And that to him was a proof that there is no God. Well, of course, the argument, you see, was a very simple one. I first had to show him that he arrived at that tremendous conclusion on that one bit of evidence alone. Had he ever thought that perhaps it was a part of the purpose of God to allow this in order to bring something else to pass? I said, how have you and your wife normally lived with respect to God? Uh, have you been regular worshippers of God? Have you lived to the praise and the glory of God in the whole of your lives? He had to admit as an honest man that they hadn't. They'd been living for themselves. They rarely thought of God at all. They certainly never attended a place of worship. They've been living an entirely godless life. And yet, you see, because his wife has pain, there is no God. Now then, I said, it hasn't occurred to you, obviously, that perhaps God permitted your wife to have this pain in order to make you and your wife think a little bit seriously about God and come, perhaps, to have this conversation with me. God has blessed you, you haven't thanked him, you've ignored him altogether. Perhaps God has chastised you now in order to bring you to your senses. I said, I've known many people, you know, who looking back across their lives have said with the psalmist who said, it was good for me that I have been afflicted, because before my affliction I went astray. I said, you know nothing, you haven't thought, no, you haven't thought about that. I said, my dear sir, if you and I don't understand ourselves and other people and the workings of their minds, how do you think you can so easily understand God and say, now because he doesn't do this, there therefore isn't a God. I say, see the conclusion you're drawing on such flimsy evidence. He'd never thought about it at all. I can't stop with this argument this evening. But there are thousands of people who don't believe in God because of the problem of pain. And yet, you know, the answer to the problem of pain is a very simple one. The Bible has got it in many places, and there are books that expound it. It's so easy to explain. Yet these people, you see, are just on that one bit of it, there is no God. Simple. QED. It all goes just because of... 
Now, I say a man who reasons and argues like that, though he may be a very learned and very brilliant man as such, he's just behaving like a fool. Well, then, look at the other evidence there, the evidence from the so-called proofs of psychology. Of course, they say psychology now has taught us, or psychology proves and demonstrates. I, again, could go into this, but we haven't the time, and it's not my business, in a sense, to do this, but I'm... Saying all this, my dear friend, lest there may be somebody in this congregation who up until this moment has said, of course, the only people who believe in God are these ignoramuses who know nothing. I'm simply trying to show you that we believe in God, we do know something about these things, and psychology has proved and can prove nothing at all. Psychology is based on pure theory. The popular psychology is based indeed upon insanity and the study of insanity. Freud's whole system is based upon the study of insanity, the abnormal, which is transferred to the normal, and then the mighty deductions are drawn. It's no use saying that psychology proves anything. Psychology puts up its theories and its suppositions, but you mustn't call that a proof. To base your position upon that, I say, is to behave in a foolish manner. And then, of course, the great question of evolution. Ah, they say, of course, people used to think that God had created the world and God had created men. But we know now that that isn't so and that everything's come out of that primitive slime. And that came from some gases and so on and back you go. Science has established it and proved it. Well, I've just got to say the same thing again. It is simply a scientific statement to say that evolution has not proved anything. Evolution is a theory, and nothing but a theory. And there are many different theories of evolution, some of which cancel one another right out. And indeed, science proves nothing, because there isn't such a thing as science. And when you say science proves, what you mean is that certain scientists say this or that which is a very different thing. But you see, on this kind of evidence, there are people who say, I no longer believe in God. I say this is folly. And then comparative religion, and all these other matters, and in every single case, the answer is the same. All these things about theories, suppositions, ideas conjured up in the minds of men to try to explain the facts, and none of them is adequate. And all of them are criticized. And there are the rival theories and the rival schools. Now, I say that a man who draws the momentous conclusion that there is no God on that sort of evidence is a fool. But look at it the other way around. He is a man who does not truly face the mass of evidence on the other side. He's doubly guilty. He takes his little bits of evidence and on them he draws this momentous conclusion. And then he doesn't face the other evidence, the vast, the tremendous evidence on the other side. What do you mean, says someone? Well, what I mean is this. I really do mean the evidence of creation. I really do mean the world in which we live. I really do mean the cosmos in which we are existing. I'm, I'm, I confess I'm baffled. That anybody should believe that this amazing universe in which we find ourselves is but the result of accident and chance. 
I must confess, I am in many ways thrilled and I'm moved as I've been reading about this mysterious thing that has just happened and about which everybody's talking at the present time about this satellite. Have you considered it? I'm not referring at the moment to the cleverness or the ability of men, but I'm referring to this, that round our globe there is this atmosphere. And then you can get beyond that atmosphere, outside the Earth's atmosphere, to this extraordinary space, as it were. And then beyond that there's something else. And this globe is suspended in all this. And so are the others. The moon, the sun, the stars, the constellations. Have you thought of it? Have you tried to? The mysterious universe, as the late Sir James Jeans called it. And I'm asked to believe that it all just happened. But there's no mind at the back of all that. I say it's a tremendous thing that the mind of men can take this satellite, as they call it, and shoot it up into that space, and that there it's going round and round. The mind of men, yes, it's tremendous. But where does all this come from? And how does it all consist and hold together? How does it all keep going? Is all this ordered universe, this amazing cosmos, the mere accidental fortuitous results of collisions or of gases suddenly condensing. The thing I say is unthinkable. As a man who was privileged to learn a little bit of science and who still has an interest in it, I say my mind cannot accept such a statement. It's madness, it's folly. And then look at man himself. Are you really satisfied that men... It is an accident that he's just come into being. We know not why, nor for what purpose, nor to what end. My dear friend, you're insulting humanity. You're insulting human nature. You're insulting yourself. Man stands up as a protest against it all. There is only one explanation of man, and that's God. Man's too big to be explained in such terms. He's more marvelous than the cosmos itself, this little microcosm which we call man. And then have you ever considered the evidence of history? Go and read it. Read your secular history. Read this Old Testament history. Can you explain all that apart from God? Can you explain the Jews in particular? The Jews at the center of the whole position at this moment. That little state of Israel. I'm not preaching politics. I'm asking you to look at these things spiritually. Look at them. Why have they persisted? Where have they come from? How do you explain their whole story? Old Testament and since. Why are they where they are at the moment? What is this? I say there's only one explanation of the Jews. And that is God. Have you ever considered the evidence of prophecy as we find it in the Old Testament? Have you ever considered the fact that there were things foretold 800 years and more before they ever happened? Have you ever written down on paper the facts concerning the birth 
and the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you gone back to the Old Testament and as he said himself, have you found it there? How it was predicted and prophesied? Going back even to Genesis 3.15 and coming right away through. How do you explain prophecy? There's only one explanation. It's God who sees the end from the beginning and who orders all things after the counsel of his own eternal will and wisdom. It's God controlling history, biblical history, all history. Have you been reading books on the latest discoveries of archaeology? They're confirming this biblical history. Oh, but time fails me. On top of all this evidence, I ask you to look at a person called Jesus of Nazareth. He belongs to history, you know. You all recognize that by calling this year 1957. Yes, he did live, and he died under Pontius Pilate. He's in history. Secular history recognizes him. There he is. Look at him. How do you explain him? Why is his church what she is? Why did she become the official religion of the Roman Empire after three centuries? This despised sect. What is this? Can you get rid of him? There's only one way to explain him. And that is God. And indeed, how do you explain the Christian church herself? Even as she is today, how do you explain her persistence? How do you explain the mighty revivals in her history which belong to history? Acknowledged in history, the Reformation and these other revivals, how do you explain them? They belong to the hard facts of history. Where have they come from? How do you account for them? Can men? Of course they can't. It's God. And then finally take the great saints of the centuries. You read the account of the greatest benefactors that this world has ever known. And you will find that there have been men who believed in God. We are all glad to have hospitals, aren't we? We've got a national health service. We are glad that there are hospitals when we or our loved ones are taken ill. And when we need some terrible operation... We are grateful for them. We thank God for them. You see, your oldest hospital in London, St. Bartholomew's, was founded by a religious man called Ray here over 800 years ago. Hospitals have come from godly men, men who believe in God. So of all your most beneficent actions, your Lord Shaftesbury's, your Wilberforce's, these men have done what they did because of their belief in God and in Christ. Do away with a belief in God and you wipe out the greatest saints, the greatest benefactors that the world has ever known. That's some of the evidence that these people ignore and dismiss and say there is no God. They draw their conclusions out of the flimsiest evidence and they neglect and ignore this mighty evidence. I say a man who does that is but a fool. But for me to close, let me put it like this. My third reason for calling such a man a fool is that because in that way and for those two reasons that I've just been giving you, he doesn't hesitate to risk his whole eternal life and his whole eternal future. Ah, oh, but he says, I don't believe there is anything after death. My dear friend, you may not believe it, but can you prove it? 
And I say that a man in the light of the evidence that I've just been adducing, who is prepared to risk it, is a fool. A man who does anything on inadequate security is a fool. Isn't it the sign of a fool? Look at the man who gambles away a fortune, the risk of fortune. Will it stop at my number? He risks his whole fortune on it. What do you say afterwards? A fool. Fancy risking everything on just that, or the number on a dice. A fool who risks so much on so little. Any man who takes momentous decisions or who risks tremendous things, I say without inadequate, with inadequate evidence and with insufficient security, is just a fool. And yet, you see, this is the position. You can't prove there isn't a life after death. You don't know what's going to happen to you when you die. And yet you say, I'm prepared to risk it. Are you? What if the Bible is right and after death the man who doesn't believe in God goes on to all eternity in misery and wretchedness in an endless useless remorse kicking himself because of his utter folly. Yes, then he will have opened his eyes and he will have seen Christ and he will have seen God and he will know there is a God. And he'll see that he threw it all away and said there is no God. Because of some things he wanted to do. For a moment he sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. And for less he's jeopardized his whole eternal destiny. On that flimsy evidence and on those suppositions and theories. Oh my dear friend the thing is so terribly serious. We are in this passing world and it's becoming more uncertain almost every day. What's going to happen next? If they can shoot these satellites into that outer space, what next, I say? Men may suddenly do something and the whole universe will be shattered and you and I with it and in it. What then? Not to consider that. Not to have some grounds for your decision and for your action. I say, is just to proclaim that you're a fool. But you know, this is the heartbreaking thing about it. If God were only just and righteous and holy, well, I was almost saying that in a sense there'd be some excuse for a man who doesn't believe in him, but there wouldn't be any excuse even then. But you know, the thing that makes such a man finally an utter fool is when you consider what he refuses, what he rejects. He wants to live this other kind of life that's so popular with the world and it seems so glamorous. And it's going to lead to this, that and the other. Marvelous freedom and emancipation and he's going to have his fill. He doesn't even stop to think that when he's middle-aged he'll be rather tired of it. And when he's an old man, or when she's an old woman lying on a bed in a garret perhaps, with everything gone, like the prodigal in the far land with no one to attend to you, they haven't even considered that still less. Have they considered what lies beyond it? But in choosing that, look what they've rejected, look what they've spurned, look what they've refused. You know, there is no life even in this world that is comparable to the godly life. It's a clean life. It's a pure life. 
It's a holy life. It's a life lived in fellowship and communion with God and with Christ. It's a life, I say, lived amongst the people who have done the greatest amount of good in this world. I simply ask you to read, read your secular books as well as others, and even they prove it and demonstrate it. You see, that other life is so empty. Did you read during this past week a statement by a certain popular novelist? Now an old man facing the end and he's got nothing to look forward to. Nothing at all. How terrible. Has been cynical towards this life this godly life throughout his life, and there he is at the end of his, with nothing. Of course he hasn't. But this life, I say, even here and now, has joys and pleasures to give unto us that the world doesn't know. And as you go on in it, it gets better and better. And as you begin to contemplate the end, you're not frightened of death and the grave. You don't say it's the end of everything. You say I'm going on to spend the whole of my time with Christ in eternity. And should these bombs come, and should hell be let loose again, they can't harm us. Why? Well, because our real life is that hidden life which is in communion with God and Christ, and which is in the safekeeping of God we are looking forward to an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven by God for them who believe in him. My dear friend, can't you see the folly of saying that there's no God? From every aspect, it is sheer folly. There's no other word for it. It's the absence of understanding. It's the absence of true reasoning. Sheer, clear thinking. It's folly. Surely, no one is going out of this service still a fool, having listened to the evidence. Be wise, I humbly beseech you. And give proof that you are wise. By telling God before you leave this very building. That though there are still many things you don't understand. You believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So you are coming to him. To acknowledge your folly, your sin, your shame. You are going to ask him to have mercy. And he will tell you that he's had mercy, that he sent his only son to die for you and your rebellion and your sin and your everything, that he'll forgive you freely, take you back to himself and give you new life and make you his son and lead you all the way and eventually receive you into glory. Tell him, repent, acknowledge it. Cast yourself upon him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And his wonderful salvation. If any man, says the Apostle Paul, seemeth to be wise in this world, well then let him become a fool, become a Christian, that he may be made truly wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Prove that you are wise.